already have one here. You can get that back. My name is Tom, and I am an alcoholic. Um, one thing I like about conventions, and I have not always liked conventions, um, but it's uh, this is Sunday morning, and this is my third meeting already. It's just kind of nice that uh, we condense into a nice space like that. Um, let me see some things about me. I live in Oakland, California. Um, I'm almost 41 years old. I haven't had to drink or use since August of 1976. My first day without a drink was the day that Gerald Ford was nominated for President of the United States, if you <laughs> remember him. Um, I continued smoking dope for two more days because I needed to. And then I went to a meeting um, in Oakland at, at the central office at 2910 Telegraph Avenue, and I, I walked in there, and it was an old-timers meeting. Now, this was not the first AA meeting I'd ever been to. I had been to one more, uh, or one earlier, I guess, and, and that was when I was in college up in Washington State in the little town of Nespilem, which is on the middle of the Colville Reservation, and Chief Joseph is buried there. And I was there one weekend for the purposes of being drunk and loaded for the entire weekend. Um, but they had an AA meeting there. It may have been Friday night. It may have been Saturday night. I don't know. But I showed up. It was in the little Catholic church that I was staying in. And um, there were a group of Native Americans and Anglo-type folk hanging out there. And... They drank black coffee and smoked cigarettes without filters and talked about feelings. And I was very impressed. <laughs> I really was. I mean, I was very impressed. And I, I'd never heard people talk like that before. And I sure identified with an awful lot of what was being said. Feelings of loneliness and feelings of, you know, all the stuff. Uh, but I wasn't done yet. So no thank you. <laughs> Um, a year or two, so then the, the second meeting I went to in Oakland was the, was the first AA meeting that I went to, not as an observer, but as someone in pain. Um, and I, I am of the current belief that pain can be a great friend because it can bring us to change behavior which got us there in the first place, maybe, with grace and uh, a sponsor. <sighs> Well, at this, at this meeting I went to in Oakland, I was 29 years old. I thought I was the youngest alcoholic in the history of the world that had to get sober. <laughs> and I didn't know. I was the first person among all my friends who got sober. So I didn't have a lot of role models to look to. Um, this meeting was an old-timers meeting. And everybody in the room was 104,000 years old. <laughs> And they were clean-shaven people with short hair and tattoos, and they wore socks, and, and it was just an awful group. <laughs> and I, I just didn't know what to do. Um, they talked and laughed, like, like Eddie was said. They laughed about a lot of things that weren't very funny at all, and I laughed right along with them. Because if you don't, they'll think you're a newcomer, you know, and I fit in, you know, just don't let me stand out in the slightest. 
My hair was a little longer than theirs, but um, the ponytail kind of gave me away as being from Berkeley. Um, but that's all in the past. Anyway, um, what's true is that I told these at that meeting, I heard what I took as the program and I held on to it real tight for a real long time. This uh, ex-con, who was an ex-con by 10 days before that he was a real con, <laughs> told me that we at Alcoholics Anonymous go to lots of meetings, we don't drink in between meetings, and we don't use no dope. And I was, uh, I was so stupid when I got here that I did not know you could leave if you didn't like those three rules. Same. <laughs> I just figured, I mean, I was so, I was in pain and I was broken and I just said, all right, that's it and we'll just do it. Um, and that was my first day without dope in years, in years. I had always, I had been smoking non-habit forming marijuana every day <laughs> for about seven years. And uh, uh, some pills, I, I'm not a big pill person. My primary uh, attraction was downers. I really liked the down because I felt so spiritual <laughs> when I was down. I just, I don't need up. Thank you. I'm up. Uh, the daily, I need something that'll alter my consciousness. But I only took, I stole some Valium, maybe half a dozen Valium in my whole life. And so being that I stole them, I don't think that counts. <laughs> Uh, my primary drug of choice has always been alcohol. I have loved alcohol. At one of the meetings this morning, we talked about this kind of stuff, and, and I mentioned that it wasn't just something I did. It wasn't just an occupation. It was my primary relationship. And when I got sober, I went. it was like the death of my best friend. I was not glad to get here. I had. It was like going through a very painful divorce. Um, it hurt tremendously. And, and the relationship had changed over the years. And what used to work real well with great intimacy and a lot of laughs had turned. And, and I was not happy about that. And if it was still working for me, I'd still be there. That's real true, too. I'm not here because uh, it suddenly seemed like a good idea. I'm here because I, the only alternative was death. Um, I did a, a, and I wasn't happy to be here for a long time, but I'll mention that in just a second. I, I did a, a thing in San Francisco uh, a year or two or three ago. I have no sense of the past. You know, it was either this morning or 10 years ago. I don't know. I just don't know. But this was with a physician who's been sober forever, and we were doing a presentation on alcoholism to a group of nice, decent people who were like nurses and nuns and, and, and hospital chaplains. And we were trying to explain to them addictive, compulsive, self-obsessed behavior and thinking. And, and they, they couldn't quite grasp it. Oh, man. <laughs> Um, so one of them said, well, we, we gave them information about the spiritual disease and, and the physical disease and what happens to livers and obsessive behavior and blah, 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 blah. And, and one of them said, well, if someone is showing early signs of alcoholism, can't we just sit them down and explain all this to them? <laughs> and they'll say, oh, I'll stop. Why, why can't we get them to just say no? 
And and the physician I was with is a French Canadian named Gill. He's been sober forever. Now I the Irish Catholics think they're tough. Irish Catholics think Irish Catholics are tough. That's because they haven't met enough French Canadians. <laughs> French Canadians are tough. Um, and he, he was there, and so that was the question. I didn't know what to say. And Gill said, uh, you know, can't you just say no? Was the, and Gill said, no. <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> Why won't it work? Because uh, alcoholism, she has three phases. Phase one is the fun phase. <laughs> that is when it's fun. <laughs> and when you're having fun, no one can tell you this will kill you. <laughs> you know? Phase two, fun plus problems. <laughs> This is when you're still having fun, but you start to have problems. <laughs> Phase three, problems. <laughs> this is when some of us become teachable, he said. So if you know someone who's having a lot of fun, get out of the way, you know, and pray that they get to phase three real fast, and then talk with them, you know, with a group, you see. Um, well, that's, that's real true for me, and, and I had fun for a long time, and if, if the fun could continue, uh, I'd still be doing it, but I don't think I had had fun for the last five years of my drinking. Um, I'm a functional alcoholic. I, I was pretty much able to show up on a regular basis for where I was supposed to be up until about the last six months. And even then, I was, I was pretty much there regularly, but I just didn't have to show up as often. Um, and I found, though, the internal damage was pretty intense. I, I was, uh, when I got sober, uh, my last two years of drinking, I was studying theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And, and it's graduate school stuff. And if you arrange it right, you can get all your classes on two days. You see, which gives you five days for library. <laughs> well, uh, I can't tell. I, those two years, I don't think I was in the library four times. You know, but I, I rearranged my schedule and my drinking did get way out of control. I could still show up, but it would take me a lot longer to work up to showing up and then longer to recover from having been there. You know, so, but I was there, you know, and, but it was, the internal damage was real strong. Uh, I don't have a great drunk a lot. I'll be real clear about, I'm very impressed with people who do, and I wish that I did. Um, I've, I've never gotten a drunk driving ticket in my life, although, like, like Jim last night, I drove thousands of drunken miles, thousands of miles in blackouts. I never had... Uh, a drunk driving ticket. Um, I've never spent a night in jail. For a while during my drinking years, I was assistant chaplain at San Quentin, but that doesn't count. Um, what else is true? I, uh, 
You know, I have no marriages that I remember. Um, I am such a bad alcoholic, I don't even have a tattoo, you see, which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, in some, you know, fellowships where you need one just to get in the door, and that includes the women. But I just don't have them. I'm a real sissy drunk, that's clear. I'm very impressed. See, what I was, I was just dying. You know, that was all. And I, I had been dying by inches. And that night, uh, I could have choked to death on my own vomit, or I could have gone on drinking for another 20 years. I, but I was a clearly uh, no affect. We call it flat affect. Nothing going on. The lights are on, but no one's home. And that was had been true. Um, I'm very impressed with people who have stories, you know, like they the thought they'd have a couple of social drinks, and they had them, and they went into a blackout, came out of the blackout six months later, um, standing in a motel room in Rio de Janeiro with $600,000 worth of cocaine and a dead body in the room. <laughs> so they call AA, you know, right away. Hello. I love those. That's not me. I was, uh, in fact, it's interesting, there were people in my community, my last summer of drinking, I lived in a very large community where you could hide a lot. There were people in that community who didn't even know I was drinking, which uh, that's not, that's partially due to the fact that I was drinking a lot alone and also to their co-alcoholism, uh, because you just don't notice some things if you're used to them a lot, you see. Um, well, what else is true? What else is true is when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, it didn't feel good right away. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. Uh, meetings, there, there was a tremendous relief at being at a meeting. Rooms felt very safe, and I didn't have a lot of safe places. Uh, Eddie mentioned a uh, little paranoia. I, mean, I, I just thought that paranoia was total awareness. You know. Uh, <laughs> At the end of my drinking, I felt myself followed. I felt phones were being listened into. Uh, I would be driving around, and I knew there was someone in the back seat. You know, I could hear them breathing. It was very spooky stuff. Uh, so I got into recovery, and I started having to find safe places to be. And alone in the room by myself was not a safe place to be. So I, I started going to meetings, and that place on Telegraph Avenue was the first. That, that's still my home. That, the Tuesday night meeting there is now my home group. Um, and I've been going there every Tuesday night. I've been in town for seven years. Uh, what else is going on here? Um, safe places. I started meeting people, and, and I didn't remember anybody's name. At my first meeting, I did not come there hoping to get a list of phone numbers. You know. I didn't know you had meeting directories. I didn't understand the meeting directory. It listed towns I had never heard of and times that were bizarre, 8 a.m., give me a break. And, uh, you know, wheelchair access meeting, smoking, non-smoking meeting, open meeting, closed meeting, which is which? Explain that one to me again. What to, I couldn't remember. But I would go to meetings. I do not know if I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. 
I don't even know if anyone ever told me that. I, but I went to a lot of meetings because when I was there, it felt safe in the room and it took some of the pressure off. And I would laugh. I mean, there were some very funny things being said and there were some very profound things being said and it felt safer in there for a long time. Um, I, I, someone was explaining to me a while ago that we do newcomers a bit of a disservice when we tell them to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Because when they get to their 90th day, the question is, now what do I do? See? Or it might be more honest if we said, go to 100,000 meetings in your first year. <laughs> then it's clear, you know, what, what, I don't know what to do next. <laughs> go to a meeting. Uh, that's what you do next. Um, Right around the time I got sober, there was a whole bunch of women and men around my age, mid-twenties to mid-thirties, who did get sober also in Berkeley, and they saved my life. They all became my sponsor. I didn't tell them this. But we kind of had young people's meetings. Back in 76, it was still kind of exciting. You didn't have a lot of, of, of young people uh, around yet. Uh, so we, we kind of hung out together, there were 20 or 30 of us, and we would just spend a lot of time together. Footnote, right now, near my, my home group, there is an adolescent treatment facility that opened up. Uh, and I, I now have, I, I attend regularly this very nice AA meeting that is full of mature people in our 30s and 40s, women and men, and we're very, you know, all upbeat and alive and have recovery and isn't it grand. And every Tuesday night now, a group of about 15, 15-year-olds 15 show up. Now, I don't know if, it, see, I'm, I am an ageist. Age does become important. Um, at our home, what the 15-year-olds do at meetings is they smoke nonstop and say, fuck, a lot. And I found myself copying this attitude <laughs> and becoming a little more patronizing because I'm now closer to their father's ages than I was to their age, you know. And I, but thank God I didn't talk, I didn't say this stuff out loud, I just took their inventory. Um, <laughs> And someone else, in, and they, people, we were getting so upset at these kids. Oh, God. And someone in the group said, you know, you kids are really lucky to be uh, in a recovery at such a young age. You've uh, saved yourself a lot of pain. And one of these kids said, can I talk? And we said, surely, young man, you know, what do you have to tell us who are in recovery? <laughs> And he said, I'm 15 years old, my liver is shot, I can't stay in school, I can't hold down a job, I don't have a family, I'm an alcoholic too. And we said, would you like to read chapter 5? <laughs> uh, because well, give, give me the slightest bit of slack and I will make sure that AA is occupied by people who are exactly like me. And the way God works it is that all kinds of different people come together and keep each other sober. I mean, that's what I notice all the time. And, and usually the one or the ones that drive me a little craziest, quickest, are the ones that God uses to speak most clearly to me on a regular basis, which is one of the things I hate. 
I used the group, as I said, as my sponsor for a long time, a long time being months. And then they keep on asking, do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? So as a people pleaser, I figured I'd better get a sponsor. So I got a fellow who was a couple of years younger than me. He was probably 26 or 27, named James, a Vietnam vet, tattoos all over. And he um, said that he'd be my sponsor. And what they didn't do was tell me what to do with my sponsor now that I've got him. You say, well, th th is this a new parent? You say, is this my Lord and my God? Uh, do I move in? Uh, do I pay his bills? Does he pay mine? I mean, what's what's the relationship? And so I, you listen to what, you, you know, there, there's, the, there's the literature, but who reads that? Instead, I figured... Uh, I'll listen to what people say at meetings about their sponsors and I'll do the same thing. You know, stick with the winners. So I heard people talk and this is what people in my area would say. They would say, well, what you do is you ask, you go to a meeting and you look around for someone who's a combination of Jesus Christ and the Renaissance man. <laughs> so you don't attend meetings, you're really interviewing, you know. Checking them out, checking them out, checking them out. Judging, judging, judging. And then uh, you finally find someone who really is profoundly wise. This could take you years, but you finally interview, go to enough meetings and discard enough people. So you finally have someone who is truly spectacular. And you go up and say, will you be my sponsor? And they'll say yes. And then you take their phone number and then you wait. <laughs> what are you waiting for? You're waiting for a crisis. See? And then you have a crisis, and as soon as the crisis happens, wait until about three in the morning. <laughs> then call and say, remember me? You're my sponsor. Yeah, yeah, I'm the one who has the beard. Yeah, right, okay. And then you explain your crisis to your sponsor, who, by the way, is always glad you called. <laughs> and by the phone, you're supposed to keep a pad and paper uh, and a pen. So that, because your sponsor now is supposed to say something wonderful and wise and insightful, which you're to write down. And then you take that to your home group meeting and you read it. And you say, I was having a crisis and my sponsor said. Then the topic of the meeting becomes, whose sponsor is the biggest asshole? <laughs> my sponsor is worse than your sponsor. No, my sponsor is worse than your sponsor. And that becomes the topic of the meeting. And then you wait for the next crisis. So I was ready to do that. And I called and I, I had a crisis. Now, what a lot of my early crises was that I was starting to feel feelings. And for me, this was crisis city. Um, I preferred to live in my head. I chose freely to live in my head years before. And, and also, due to a little dysfunction and craziness at home and some codependency and Al-Anon issues, I decided to deep freeze all feelings, except for those that would fit into this very narrow space. And I will accept those. But those great big ones out here, no thank you. So I'll live here, and I chose to live in a very small space. Getting sober as God's grace worked, and I would hear people talk about things, and my own recovery progressed, and I think it's kind of organic. I think it really does happen if we can get out of the way. I started defrosting inside some. And some things that I had frozen solid years ago started coming up. And they did not come up polite. 
And a lot of them had to do with rage and anger and fear. And they'd come in waves. There'd just be this wave of rage. I didn't know where it came from. And, I, and then it would go, boom, just as soon as it came. And I didn't know what I did to get rid of it. It would just show up. Um, and what's interesting about this is I, the way I talked is I said, I'm losing my mind. And they said, no, 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 no. Uh, you're not losing your mind. You're discovering your feelings. And that's different. You see, and what you're starting to experience is that even on an emotional level, you're out of control. You just need the program more than you did when you were frozen. You see, um, you need now not just to go to meetings. You need to go to meetings and listen, <laughs> which I resented. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, I was in a lot of feelings and panicky about them because I hadn't felt them before. And I, I was only 30 years old by this time. And I called my sponsor and I said, I am in crisis or words to that effect. And he said, what step are you on? What step am I on? What are you talking about? Uh, the step I was on was that I was going to a lot of meetings. I was not drinking in between meetings and I was not using no dope. That's the step I was on. But you can't tell them that because they get upset at you. <sighs> so I said, well, I guess I'm on step one. And he said, what does step one say? This is a phone conversation. I opened the book, you know. <laughs> I said, well, step one says that I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. And he said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I was a graduate student at this point. <laughs> like I was in the 34th grade, you know, something like that. And, uh, teachers who want you to reword things so they know you understand them. In fact, I even took education classes. My training is rabbinical. I mean, I'm trained to be a teacher, you know, a good rabbi. And uh, uh, like we had in education classes, you do some odd things and, and you had teachers. Now tell me what color the first step reminds you of, you know. Uh, what feeling do you get with step five? You know, you, oh, please. Um, so I thought this is what he's asking about. That, or reword it, reword step one. And I said, well, step one says that I acknowledged <laughs> that I agreed to the fact that I had no control over booze and dough. Mentioned the D word, you know, which we hadn't even talked about yet. I mean, that was, you know, my secret. Um, and that my life had become a real mess. And he said, that's not what it says. And I said, what does it say? And I didn't say that calmly. I said that with a little anger. You know, what are you? You know? And he said, Tom, if you look real closely at the 12 steps, nowhere in there does the word I appear. 
He said, we admitted we came to believe, we made a list, we sought, we continue to take, and having had a spiritual awakening, we. He said, if you're ever going to get well, you're going to have to leave your room and join the group. I hate that. <laughs> I still hate that. I think I should by now have reached the point where I don't need meetings anymore. And I don't need sponsors anymore. I've read the book, I sponsor people, I've been to two zillion meetings, and I'm a speaker on the circuit. What do you mean, go to meetings, have a sponsor, and work the steps? I should be well! One of my little problems... Um, <laughs> is that at a very impressionable age, I, I decided that, that the image of masculinity that really rings my bell is uh, the Marlboro Man. <laughs> Where you uh, might have a little difficulty in your life, and when you do, you hop on your horse and ride off. I was going to say drive off, but you don't drive horses ride off to the high Sierras and get there alone and set up camp and smoke cigarettes until it's clear. <laughs> Someone told me the horse was his significant other. I like that. <laughs> and there's a program for that, too. But... James told me if I was ever going to get well, I was going to have to start taking my horse to meetings. <laughs> and that's one of the tools I still use. I mean, we, the, the, I think the program is full of tools. I do not use all the tools all the time, because I don't need all the tools all the time. But there are some tools I use real, real regularly. And what topic this evening is what does it all mean? Uh, Tom, would you like to say anything about that? And I just, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, and, or how does it all fit together in the cosmos? And, you know, really, does God understanding God? Uh, well, it's just, we were being very theoretical and very abstract. And I get nutso around abstract stuff because I, I can talk myself into anything. I mean... And we, we called on a newcomer, and you know, I, maybe the topic was, uh, what do you hope to get out of sobriety? And we were getting, we were getting a lot of theoretical answers. Oh, a better sense of self-esteem, you know, and, uh, which is all grand, but what does that feel like, you know? Um, this, this newcomer said, well, what I hope to get out of sobriety is that any day I hope that I stop shaking. And I almost asked him to be my sponsor. <laughs> Because when you tell the truth on that kind of level, it goes gong. And I say, me, I remember when all I hoped for was I could sit through a whole meeting. And they were hour long. They weren't these, an hour just that I could sit for the meeting without having to pace back and forth. I know I'm getting well. You see, uh, I relate very strongly to that kind of stuff. So with James and this business of we and going to meetings, that's a tool I use. And I use sponsors. I, I, um, I have had a sponsor now in Los Angeles for... I, li I, I was sober a year in Berkeley. I got transferred to Los Angeles. I lived in L.A. four years sober. Um, then I moved back to the Bay Area, and I've been living in Oakland now for six or seven years. But when I was down there, I mean, I need a sponsor. You see, but you're a college graduate. What do you need a sponsor for? Because... 
Give me 20 minutes and I will talk myself into anything. And I used to blame the booze. The reason I did it is because I was drunk. And then I found myself doing it sober. You see? And justifying it, you know? And there's that, oh, well, the reason I can do this is because the rules that apply to you don't apply to me. See? This is called arrogance. This is called arrogance, and it will kill me. My arrogance, there are two flavors of arrogance. One is the I am better than you. So we have nothing in common, and the rules that apply to you don't apply to me, and I'll just be fine by myself, thank you. That's not mine. Mine is the other flavor of arrogance, which says I'm worse than you. Therefore, we have nothing in common, and the rules that apply to you don't apply to me, and I can end up alone in my room with yeah, having a wonderful time, you see, with my head. Um, so I need a sponsor, and uh, James, I asked to be my first sponsor, not because he was smart, not because he was brilliant. He had three months more sobriety than I did. And his sponsor had three months more sobriety than he did. So any information that was passed from one to the other was new information. <laughs> you know? And it kept it real fresh. I mean, it's not like we had to say, Oh, yeah, I remember what it was like then. Oh, yeah, give me a minute, it'll come back. We had just, one had just left the phase, the other was entering. You know, so, yeah, here's what you do. Go to a lot of meetings and call me in the morning. You know, that's what you do. That was always their answer. Um, I took James out for lunch about two years ago. He moved up to Chico and married kids, divorced back, sober. And... Um, <laughs> We talked about the good old days when we were both pretty raw, and he said, uh, I said, remember I used to call you up and, and, and whine on the phone, and you would say, what step are you on? And he laughed and said, yeah, and he said, you know why I kept asking you what step you were on? I said, no, why? He said, because when I called my sponsor and sniveled, he'd say, what step are you on? <laughs> you know? I mean, let's focus, you know, on something. <sighs> well, when I was a year, I was being transferred to Los Angeles and I um, needed a sponsor. I needed a sponsor. I needed a higher power. I want to talk about those two things this morning. And the higher power I'd been using for a very long time was a particular meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Again, AA to me does not exist in the abstract. I mean, I guess it does platonically out there. But to me, it's the meetings and the people that I attend. That's AA. I mean, I know they do it in New York, too, in New Jersey and Alabama. Doesn't make any difference to me. AA to me is the way they do it where I live. And my higher power was the Wednesday night Berkeley meeting. And I, the reason it was my higher power is because I could walk in that meeting and feel loved and accepted. And everybody was welcome. Everybody was welcome. The only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking. And they really practiced that at the meeting. And I'm very grateful for that because if anybody can be turned away from AA, I can be turned away from AA. And I need that open door policy. You know? I, or I become very nervous. I'm so nuts on this stuff. Um, so, I, so everyone has to be there. So at the Berkeley uh, Wednesday night meeting, we had old people and young people and fat people and thin people and Catholics and ex-Catholics and communists and ex-communists. We had Muslims at the meeting. We had Hindus at the meeting. We even had some Hare Krishnas at the meeting. And someone would go over and say, you know, you people would stay sober if you stayed out of airports. <laughs> and we couldn't find that anywhere in the book. 
So we let him know that was his problem, not theirs. You know, let's let's keep this clear. Who's crazier than the other? I mean, that's a very important distinction. Um, we had women and men at the meeting. We had different races and different original languages and different sexual persuasions. At one meeting, we counted 15 different sexual persuasions at the meeting. And it was not a big night. You know, some people were home doing it. So we just. So it was it was a that was my higher power and I used it a lot and I went to a lot of other meetings. But when it got crazy on Saturday or crazy on Monday, I knew all I had to do was get there Wednesday night and I'd be OK. Well, then I moved. What do you do when you move? I mean, my, my higher power was a geographical place. You know what? It, well, I went to L.A. and I, I, I had to find a sponsor. So I wrote the Cardinal Archbishop and I said, uh, your wonderfulness, I'm uh, coming into L.A. and I'm, I'm in the Jesuit order and I'm, I'll be ordained a priest next year and I would really like to find uh, a priest who is a member of AA. Uh, are, are there any priests in AA in the Archdiocese? And he called, wrote me back and said, uh, contact Terry R. So I got into L.A. on a Friday. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. And I, I'm used to Berkeley meetings. Number one, we don't clap. We think it's uncool. Cool is important, as you know, you know, in recovery, you got to look cool. Um, and there were small meetings like with 20, 30, 40 people was the big meeting. And, and you met the fellowship if you went to them. And we had a meeting every night and that was it. So if it was Wednesday night, you knew where everybody would be. It wasn't like we had another meeting. We didn't have enough resentments yet to start other meetings. <laughs> That started, you know, we started having three meetings on Sunday night, one for them and one for those and one for these, you know, and which one do you go to? He's in. Uh, it's scary. You know, you tell what me, what's your home group and they know uh, your uh, financial status, your tax bracket, if you're married or single, you know, I mean, well, anyway, that's another issue. Um, <laughs> LAUGHTER I went to a meeting Friday night in L.A. and L.A. has big meetings. And I, uh, it was scary. I went to one on Saturday afternoon and one on Saturday evening and one on Sunday afternoon and one on Sunday evening. The Sunday evening one was on the corner of Wilshire and Normandy. This was like in 1977. And 500 of our closest friends would gather and, and uh, call each other darling and wear dark glasses. It was really, really something. And clap for everything. Clap for everything. Lord's Prayer, Serenity Prayer. They'd clap. And I just froze. I didn't know how to do this. So Monday came and I called Terry R. And I said, I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. I need a sponsor. Well, you're my sponsor. And he said, uh, how long have you been here? I said, three days. He said, have you been to a meeting? I said, I've been to five. He said, yeah, I'll be your sponsor. You know, it's clear you're working the program. So uh, at least you're doing something. So we began connecting and this became a very important part of my recovery because I didn't know if I could trust this man and he was my sponsor. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know how tall he was. I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't even know who he voted for. But I needed a sponsor. I needed someone with time and experience on the program. And so we connected and we started going to what I think is the worst AA meeting in North America. But he loves it. He just thinks it's the best group he's ever been to. And we'd go to this awful meeting full of awful people. 
And he would say, wasn't this a great meeting? And I would go because I was busy checking Terry out. And then you go to a meeting right, and watch this, these creeps. And then next Monday we do the same thing. And I, I was with him a lot and I was seeing him interact with a lot of different kinds of people and I was wondering how he would interact with me if I ever started telling him the truth about myself. Because like a lot of us, I mean, I can easily lead two or three or four or five different lives. You know? And you tell me who you want me to be and I'll be it. There, there's Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, uh, which is a story of, of an ACA situation. And uh, it's really true. And, and Huck Finn on one occasion is talking with Tom Sawyer and says, uh, uh, Tom, if you're going to survive, you have to learn how to disappear so that people don't see who you really are, because if they see who you really are, they'll hurt you. And Tom Sawyer said, well, how do you do that? And Huck Finn said, appear to be whatever they want you to be, and they'll never see the real you. The chameleon, just blend in, you see? And then you'll never notice me. Well, I had done that for so many years so successfully that I had no idea who I was. But I could very quickly tell what you expected of me and blend. You know? Well, sobriety is starting to unfreeze, starting to come forward, starting to come out of my own shell. Uh, I have to have someone to share this with, fourth and fifth step wise, and that's going to... The book doesn't say do it with your sponsor. It says do it with another human being, and as we know, some sponsors don't qualify. <laughs> but I wanted to do it with my sponsor because I really wanted someone to know me well. The trust was such a crucial thing here. So I kept checking Terry out and occasionally I'd raise an issue and see how he'd handle it, you know. Then I'd raise another one and see how he'd handle it. I didn't trust him. Didn't trust him. I finally got time for... I'd been doing a fourth step off and on for 18 months. Now, it wasn't a long fourth step by any means. It was a repetitive, dull fourth step. Pretty much based on the book, which I thought was pretty good. Um, I wrote whenever I was in pain, and the second the pain and it left, I stopped writing. So I might write, you know, for two or three hours one night, then not touch it again for three months. And then write again, and then so off and on and off and on. But I finally was kind of done with it, and I was about two years clean and sober, and I said, listen, Terry, I'm almost done with my fourth step. Uh, I'd like to do my fifth step with you. When could we do it? And he said, great, how about next Friday? Which seemed awfully soon to me. <laughs> but I said, okay, so I finished it up and, and did it. And what I did, we met in my room, which kind of was a mistake, um, because you can't leave then. I think a nice neutral place like a Greyhound bus depot or a Denny's is a lot more sense. But I met in my room. And I admitted to God and myself and the floor the exact nature of my wrongs, and Terry happened to be in the room. On one account, I didn't want to look at his face for a couple of reasons. Number one, this was dull. Most of it was, it was my best shot, and it was dull. I discovered, kind of to my embarrassment, that if you give me a couple of social drinks, I will do the same stuff over and over and over and over again without variation. This is pretty embarrassing. And that I don't have the energy or the imagination to be a really great disaster. <laughs> I'm just one of those folks that gets into a little bit of trouble and one night might strangle on his own vomit and die. I'm just one of those people, you know. 
So the other reason was there were parts of the book that, uh, parts of the book, parts of my fourth step that I found real embarrassing. And I was afraid to look up and see judgment on his face. You know? So I just didn't look. I just read. And then I finished and I was done. And I said, I'm done. And it took maybe half an hour, 40 minutes max to get through this whole thing. Because I talked about the exact nature of my wrongs, not every single detail of every one. I mean, I edited stuff out, you know, like, uh, anyway, that's another issue. And, and I was ready to, to leave. But again, you can't leave because I was in my own room. And he said, well, one thing's real clear. Oh, no. So, you know, I don't even like people for whom one thing is real clear. Um, and I've all see, I, can I trust this man? There might be things real clear to him. You know, I back off. And I thought he was going to summarize me in 25 words or less, you know, and say, your problem, Tom, is blah, blah. Well, um, I cringed waiting for the blow. And he said, what's real clear, Tom, is that both you and I need this program very much. And he got up and left my room. I was thrilled to see him go. <laughs> now, I did not call him the next day because I still don't know if I can trust this man. Because you know, what's the, I mean, I've told him all the sensitivities, you know, all the secrets he knows now. What's he going to do with them? See, that's the trust question. I mean, I made step one. You make step, you know, my move, your move. I was afraid to call him the next day and say, listen, uh, why don't we get together for coffee? And he might respond something like this. You psychopath. <laughs> You're a real creep. I couldn't even sleep last night thinking about it. <laughs> and does the archbishop know? <laughs> so I thought I'd give him a little time. And uh, he didn't call me because he's an introvert and they never call. So we, I, and it was about six months. And about, I just this came when I reconnected with him. Um, and by the way, I finished the fifth step. I did not have a major religious experience there. You need to know this. I did not suddenly feel like I was walking hand in hand with the creator of the universe. Now, some people do have that experience, and I have a theory. Let me give you a quick theory on this, and this is rushing off. You can see how dangerous it is to think. I think people who were raised in, in denominations that have the confessional available had the experience of talking to people about real stuff since they were small children, and it's not a new thing. It's just doing it a little more comprehensively and a little more honestly, but it's not a new thing necessarily. People from religious backgrounds that don't have that, it's the first time they've ever really come clean to somebody and it's an exhilarating experience. I, I, I think that's probably, I, mean, I did this in a very business-like way because I've learned to do it in a very business-like way. You know, like there are no big deals. So it, I, I think that was it because I kind of felt like I missed out because I read Bill Wilson's account and to him, this was all, this was a major experience for him. You know, well, did I do something wrong? No. Uh, but I figured now that I've done that, I also knew I needed to get to a meeting so I wouldn't drink that day. 
You see, that's the two I went to a meeting. And they said, Tom, you look like hell. And I said, well, I did my fifth step today. I said, well, of course you look like hell. <laughs> Can we get you a cup of coffee? There you go. Have a seat. Want to read chapter five? All right. Uh, you know, it was not a big deal, but everyone said, well, of course. You know, this, is, this was L.A. after all. Um, I met Terry at a, um, a spiritual happening. Uh, rabbi Magnin was the uh, chief rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple. And it was around Passover or Lent. Uh, it's both true. And Rabbi Magnin was having a lot of non-Jewish clergy into for prayer and meditation and to share with non-Jewish clergy the richness of the Passover celebration. And invitations went out to everybody, and so a whole bunch of Catholic priests and, and Protestant ministers and other folks showed up. I was there, and Terry was there. And I think it's a wonderful, uh, looking back, it's kind of nice because Passover is a celebration of freedom and liberty and release from bondage, which is what was going on in my life. And I saw Terry on the other side of the temple, and I wandered over to him, and I said, uh, how you doing? He said, fine, want to have coffee? I said, sure. And we reconnected. No big deal. How you been? Okay, let's talk. Yeah. Uh, I had been in the program for two and a half years. And I finally found somebody I could trust. And by trust, I mean this. I realized I could tell him anything and he would not run away from me which is part a of trusting part b of trusting i could tell him anything and he would not smother me with advice which i need to know too because i i mean i don't want i need to be with somebody who's not going to call for the cavalry every time i have a bad day um i need to be with someone who doesn't panic easily because i panic easily and he was one of those folks who just said, oh, you burned down the house, really? And then I was like, okay, what else? You know? <laughs> well, I can trust this man. And I, and I found as I go on, if I can trust one person, I can trust more than one person. And that's become a real freedom to me. And this brings up the subject of God. Um, the slogan that we use in AA is that God speaks to other people. I really believe that, you know, um, that's where I sense God most present. I mean, I, I, God is in lots of places. God's skillful that way. <laughs> and I surely on occasion can sense God in creation. And I, one of the spiritual things that I do is I work in a garden and I plant bulbs and I trim roses and I grow vegetables and I think that's a very spiritual thing not a lot a little just a little poco 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 um, but at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is also where I sense the presence of God and I've had a lot of difficulty with God and I still have a lot of difficulty with God and my basic problem is this um, well I have, I have several basic problems one is I find it hard to believe that God really can get involved with me now, I know God can become involved with you, but my arrogance says no for me. I mean, it's like I am such a scumbag <laughs> that God's grace runs out by the time it gets to me. I don't have an angry God. I have an indifferent God. I mean, this is we're talking about old ideas. This is my oldest idea, that God somehow is just indifferent or ineffective when it comes to me. 
and so turning my will and my life over to the care of God doesn't accomplish very much. Now, I think you should do it, and God can do wonders for you. But I, this, it, it was crucially important for me to realize that God is available to everybody in the room, and that I was in the room. You know, and therefore, God was available to me also. That's a big breakthrough for me. Big breakthrough for me. But so that's one problem. The other problem I have with God is um, fear. Because I have this sneaking suspicion that God will continue asking things of me that I don't want to give. Or God will make requests of me. And I'll say, this is the voice. It says, listen, you've already given a lot. When is God going to get off your back? You see? What more is there to give, Tom? You see? And, and it, it's a real resistance to God. And, and I, um, I don't think in terms of, of uh, pictures, I mean, I think in terms of pictures mostly. And the picture I have of my relationship with God is not me and God walking hand in hand, but rather me and God at a, on a tug of war. You know, with this very deep pond there in the middle, and I'm on one side and God's on the other, and I'm yanking as hard as I can, lest I be pulled into the pond. Um, and this is a pretty regular stance of mine. I'll just find I begin resisting a lot. I find, by the way, there is precedence for this. Um, I was reading uh, the other book a while ago, and I noticed that, that early in Genesis, there's the, the Abraham story, which is a very, very powerful story. And Abraham is 75 years old and his wife is 70 and they're pretty well established and they're hanging out and they have, you know, flocks and goats and houses and grapevines and, you know, they have friends and they're very established people. And three strangers come in from the desert and say, hi there, uh, listen, we want you to leave everything you know and everything you're familiar with. And we want you to go to a new country, and in the new country, uh, they're going to hate to see you. They're going to try to kill you. You're probably going to have to kill a lot of them. Um, they do not take visa card. They do not speak your language. <laughs> and we'd like you to leave this afternoon. <laughs> and on top of that, next year at this time, your wife, who is 70 years old, will give birth to a son, and you're going to be the father. It doesn't say this in the text, but I think Abraham's first thought was, <laughs> I'm going to be 90 years old with a 15-year-old in the house. <laughs> and I'm real comfortable here, and I'm being asked to go to some place that doesn't sound real comfortable. And I think he had some resistance. And I think he had some fear, and I think he had some questions. He went in to tell his wife and said, by the way, we're, we're leaving this afternoon. Can you pack? And of course, she gets to pack. Um, it's a long tradition. You know, they do the work. Um, and uh, he said, by the way, next year, uh, you're going to give birth to a son, and, and I'm going to be the father. And she laughed so hard. <laughs> that she had to sit down, and when the little boy was born, they named him Isaac, which means she laughed so hard she had to sit down. Yeah. Um, I 
I think that those of us leaving the world of being a drunk and entering sober world, it's a very similar situation. We're being asked to leave something very familiar and very comfortable. It's full of despair, but it's home, you know? And they say, all right, now, we want you to be able to get through each day, have relationships, connect with your family, have jobs, alcohol and drug free. And it can be real scary. And we can resist it a lot. And the question, I hear people say, you can't have fear and faith. Well, I do. I get them both in good doses, maybe 60-40 or 90-10 or 80-20, but I get rushes of them both. And, and when I find that, even when I'm afraid or even when I'm fearful, I can still act. I'm afraid. What should I do? Go to a meeting. That's action. I'm afraid of paying all my bills. Well, pay them. Bill Wilson, I love that in, in early AA history, I just love some of the stuff that goes in here, this chapter on a vision for you. We usually, in some, at least in, in California, uh, we end meetings and conferences with the, that thing that our book is meant to be suggestive only. You know, and we, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is singing the Battle of the Republic in the background. We tear up and just say, oh, it's so beautiful. Well, <laughs> early AA history is not real smooth. Now, we think it is. Well, Bill got sober, then Bob got sober, and then suddenly we were in Montreal with 50,000 of our closest friends. You know, no. Um, let's see. Bill here on 153. Years ago in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain western city. That city is Akron, Ohio. A certain western city. This indicates that uh, a New Yorker wrote it. At least someone from Vermont, you know, at least that. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. Had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. But his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. This is Bill W. at six months. And I love I loved to know that because some of us at six months think we should be just doing fine. <laughs> And it's not true. It's just not true. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. Still physically weak and sober, but a few months he saw that this predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? One dismal afternoon, probably a Thursday. <laughs> he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. Now, if he had a sponsor, His sponsor would have said, find a job. <laughs> well, I'm looking for work that is dignified work. You know, after all, I'm very educated. Um, they're hiring at McDonald's, Tom. You know, yes, but, uh, you know, I'm above that. Uh, any job you can tell the IRS about is real work. <laughs> You know, I just believe that. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. Have you ever seen an unattractive bar? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
He could see the gay crowd inside. Oh, really? <laughs> see, even then it was going on. In there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance. To scrape an acquaintance? I, I thought that was an abortion reference. I really did. And it, the, the book is full of 1930s Midwesternisms. In about a hundred years, they're going to have to publish the companion to the big book that translates 1930s Midwesternisms. Scrape an acquaintance means ask for money. You say, well, not in 1973. Okay. Scrape an acquaintance and he would have a lonely evening. Of course, he couldn't drink, but why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him, and all the craziness starts. <laughs> so he calls an Episcopal priest, and the Episcopal priest says, go and see Bob. Uh, and he goes and sees Bob. It was the usual situation, home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted. I love distracted children. <laughs> Bills in arrears and standing. Um, so they talked, and, and Dr. Bob gets saved. You know? But he's not going to tell anybody he's a drunk. You're, I don't, no, 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 I'm ashamed. Of course, then he slips. Uh, just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. Half the early fellowship slipped. This is important for us to remember. We get so righteous about this stuff, you know. Oh my God, he slipped. Yes, half the early fellowship slipped. The question is, is he welcome back? You know? Welcome home. Nice to see you. What was it like? We'd like the tales. You know? <laughs> And then, um, anyway, Bob comes back and talks to everyone, tells me he's a drunk, they say, we know. <laughs> and then Bill and Bob are talking to each other, which gets dull. So they need number three. Now, this is where we get to the great picture of AA history, with the guy on the bed, with the two guys with white shirts and skinny ties who look like Mormon missionaries. <laughs> And everyone looks very earnest, you know, very earnest. Uh, they call the hospital and say, do you have a drunk? And the nurse said, yes, we've got a corker. It's <laughs> another one of those phrases. He's just beaten up a couple of nurses. Goes off his head completely when he's drinking, but he's a grand champ when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. <laughs> Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town. Well, of course he was. <laughs> and one of my favorite lines in the book. But just now we've got him strapped down tight. <laughs> they go see him. And he says, who are you fellows and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. You know, and I, this is a guy I identify with real clearly. You know? said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. 
Hopelessness was written, written large on the man's face as he replied, oh, but that's no use. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here. I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. Step one. Absolutely. And what Bill and Bob do is they let this guy know that there's 11 more steps. <laughs> now, even they don't know that yet. You know, because they're still operating out of six, you know, uh, six steps that we put together from Oxford. Um, so they talked, they didn't talk about him, they talked about themselves. They talked about their own experience and their own strength and their own hope. And this poor guy says, that's me, that's me, I drink like that. And then um, they burst into laughter. And the number three says, damn little to laugh about that I can see. Yes, that's true. Um, and they say here that was in June 1935. Now, this is, I heard, it's interesting that we do not date the birth of AA on the day that Bill Wilson got sober. We date the birth of AA on the day the message got passed to someone else who got sober. Uh, from the very beginning, this is a we, not an I. A we, not an I. Uh, June 1935, and then it says on the bottom of 159, a year and six months later, these three had succeeded with seven more. That's real slow. <laughs> you know? I mean, AA grew very, very slowly. And sometimes we get very impatient because more people should be sober by now, you know? And the fact is, I think that it's amazing that there are anyone, there's anyone sober at all anywhere. We're everywhere in the world right now. Two years ago, I was in Poland. Um, I was working in a church in Stockholm, and we have two English-speaking meetings now in, in Stockholm. And I was attending the meeting, and a couple of people from Poland showed up, one who spoke Polish-German, the other spoke Polish-English, and they both had dictionaries. And we talked and laughed, and I told them I was going into Poland to do some stuff, a little pilgrimage I was making. And uh, they said, well, where are you going to be and when and we'll meet you? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Listen, it's OK. I'll be by myself. I don't mind. And they said, <laughs> they said, give us names and dates and we'll be there. And so I gave them some names and dates and we got into my friend who's a psychologist who's in recovery. He and I, uh, uh, we find we can travel together and go to meetings and not kill each other, which is pretty wonderful. So. We, we went into Poland, we got to Poznan, we got off the bus, and there were five sober men waiting for us, one of whom had an English-Polish dictionary, and very intense. <laughs> and we went to a meeting that night on Saturday night in Poznan, a big meeting. They had about 80 people there, and it usually is a Friday night meeting. But they met Friday night and said that we have two Americans coming, a priest and a psychiatrist, and they both claimed to be sober, and no one could believe it. <laughs> So they held the Friday night meeting twice that week. Once on Friday, once on Saturday. Now try to do that here in the States and some people would say you're violating traditions. You know, I mean, you're, but no, they were just showing up. And they translated, we chaired the meeting and they translated and everything just thought it was wonderful and we looked around and saw stuff and went to Krakow and we were met there again by two people who spoke English and Fre uh, Polish and French. No English at all. Um, and they were told to look for two Americans who are sober. 
and big men, and we were just sign, you know, and enchanté, merci. Uh, I know nine French words, and most of them have to do with booze. So uh, there, AA in Krakow, and Krakow is a big city. It was the only city in Eastern Europe not destroyed by the Germans on the way out because the Russians showed up early. Everything else was leveled. Uh, they, AA started in Krakow. We were there two years ago now. It had started nine months before the first AA meeting. There were now 12 sober AA people and one Al-Anon. <laughs> and we met her and said, relax. <laughs> she was keeping it all together, you know. Um, and then we got on the train and went to Warsaw. Met at the train by people in Warsaw who had, you know, they had names and they were looking for Americans. You know, there they are and grabbed us. And uh, uh, we stayed with a fellow named Adam and his wife and two kids. And Adam was a member of Solidarity who'd been sober for four years. And he was very alive and very creative and he was a beer salesman. Um, <laughs> and we were talking about what's it like to be in Poland and sober and politics and all these things and discussing things. And we went on for a long time. We went to one of their meetings and met a lot of people. It was very exciting. And he said that alcoholism has been such a problem in Poland that they ran an article in the Communist Party monthly magazine about how AA works. And it was written by a Pole who got sober in Santa Monica. And, you know, 12 steps and God and the Communist Party newspaper ran it without changing a word. And as a result of that, Adam, the solidarity member, uh, got a phone call from a member of the military government who said, I can't stop drinking. What can I do? So Adam, the member of Solidarity, made the 12-step call on the member of the military government, and now Adam is his sponsor. <laughs> What's amazing is we hear things like this all the time. And this can happen when the traditions are rigorously observed about our primary purpose and that anybody who wants to stop drinking is welcome and things like that. It's just crucial. I, I learn a lot about the way God works and the way God exists because I hear you talk about your experience, strength and hope. And I regularly, I immerse myself in AA stuff and I meet women and men who should be dead, showing up, paying attention, telling the truth wearing their own clothes and it's stunning it's just stunning i'm very grateful to be in las vegas this morning i'm very grateful for your asking me to come thanks the committee for the hospitality and and uh, giving me a place to connect with uh, folks who are keeping me sober today thank you